Uh, welcome on a holiday weekend, the few, the proud, those that are in Midland for a Labor Day, or some of us like uh, to call it opening weekend of dove season. Uh, we are still in Christianity 101, uh, honestly just a couple weeks left as we walk through some different foundational topics about just what basically does it mean to be a Christian, what is Christianity all about, uh, and uh, sometimes especially, maybe, especially with the topic today, sometimes there's this very common misconception that there are things that are highly theological and there are things that are highly practical, but the two really aren't the same. That, like, if you get to a really highly theological thing, that must not be real helpful on Monday morning. Or if something is just incredibly practical and it helps you, that it must not be theological. And uh, just quite honestly, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, because... Like theology is the study of God and understanding who he is, what he's done, and how he has created everything to operate. And so the more we understand who God is and how he has designed uh, us and our hearts and our relationships, uh, it just, the, the more practical that is. And, and I think nothing could be further from the truth than those things are divorced from one another. And especially for the topic today. Okay, the topic today is worship. Everybody say worship. You're going to do great. I know sometimes we have to overcompensate for those that are gone and traveling, but uh, goodness, you sound caffeinated. It's going to be a great morning. Uh, sometimes when you hear worship, you kind of put that in the, oh, that's highly theological, and it is, but it is so unbelievably practical that it meets, uh, it's where the rubber meets the road in a lot of our lives. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. Um, just th this fact that we have been created very uniquely by God to worship Him. And so I want to open up, as we have for a lot of this series, uh, trying to define terms uh, somewhat as we walk into them. Uh, because you throw out the word worship, and I'm sure a lot of different things come into our minds. A lot of times we just think about uh, what I would consider an important but very small portion of the definition of a holistic understanding. And just think about singing and praising and what we just did and what an incredible thing and necessary and commanded thing for us to do to sing to Jesus. But when we talk about worship, Worship, when the Bible talks about worship, it is just way bigger than only singing. Uh, and I don't have a really clear, crisp definition of worship, but I want to explain uh, a couple things that I think define it, and I'll uh, kind of wander my way through here, and hopefully we get a good grasp of that. But it's just kind of this idea of that we're in awe of something bigger than us. Um, we, we praise something that we uh, would consider praiseworthy, uh, or there's something that has just caught our, uh, caught our glimpse, caught our imagination that uh, triggers something inside to want to respond to that. Uh, so I think you, you start asking questions about identity. Most of the time, we draw our identity from what we worship. Uh, we will try to attach our things to things that we uh, believe have value and therefore um, define ourselves by them. And so it's incredibly important what we worship because we're going to tether just our whole identity around that. Um, and oftentimes, I think like the idea of evangelism, of being an evangelist for something, we normally evangelize or tell people about and try to get other people uh, involved with the things that we value the most and where we put the most awe and worship, okay? That's not a real 
clean, crisp definition of worship, but it really is a holistic response to something that we perceive as worthy of our lives, and we respond to it in all sorts of different ways, okay? It is a holistic life response, and we were designed by God to respond holistically every little corner of our lives and hearts to Jesus, Okay, so you need to know this. We've talked about this for years. Human beings have been given such a unique place in creation that we uniquely have the capacity to worship, okay? Uh, Animals do not have the capacity. God did not put in them this longing to respond to something greater that was put in us by God. And you don't get the choice, okay? Humans do not get the choice between are we going to worship or are we not going to worship, you just simply do not have that option. And I hope to show that to you as we walk forward this morning. What we do have the option of, there are two options. One is we can worship God, the the creator, the creator of all things that is worthy of worship, or uh, we can worship something that he created, uh, which would fall under the biblical category of idolatry, okay? So uh, we don't have the option of just not worshiping. Uh, Even an atheist is worshiping something and responding to some perceived greatness. And so it's not, do we worship or not? It's do we worship God or do we worship some part of his creation uh, as idolatry? And that's such a fun way to start the morning. So uh, Acts chapter 17, uh, it, 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 it's Paul kind of invading this very non-Christian culture, and he's trying to pick it apart and understand it so that he might share the gospel uh, inside of that culture. And, and it's one of my favorite texts, honestly. I just love the story uh, of how Paul interacts when he is in Athens. And, you know, he's wandering through the, the, the culture and the city, and, and he's trying to understand, and he realizes, oh, these are not people that are not worshiping, they're just worshiping a whole bunch of other things besides God, okay? Now, this is going to get really practical really quickly. Um, like, if, you, if the two categories are God and creation, uh, then normally if we refuse to or don't maybe even know who Jesus is, don't worship him, don't respond to him rightly, uh, then there are a whole host of things that flood into that area in the human heart. Uh, oftentimes we end up worshiping sex, Uh, oftentimes we will end up worshiping ourselves, Uh, we will worship money, we will worship uh, our job, we will worship another person, and there are just so many things that go wrong when that happens, Uh, and at the root of all that is idolatry, okay? Um, Years ago, I had a neighbor uh, at our house before we moved, and uh, this this gentleman had started coming to Redeemer, uh, and I'd got to share the gospel with him a few times, and he came to faith, was a brand new Christian, and so we used to go on runs together uh, around our neighborhood back when I uh, would run a little bit. Those days apparently are gone, and um, and we were running one time, and it was just such a fun time because he was a brand new Christian, but he was growing, and he was uh, asking questions, didn't know anything, uh, and he was asking me one time about this car that he had. He said, I've got this really expensive sports car. It's honestly in a, in a garage somewhere. It's not even at my house. Is that a sin? Okay, is it a sin for me to own this expensive car? And I start 
talking like, you know what, the, like the car is kind of neutral. Uh, it all has to do with the, the place of your heart around this car. And do you love the car? Is it like, is it some type of idol? Because like at the end of the day, idolatry is what uh, really frustrates God. And he looked so confused and we're both sweaty and out of breath. And he was so confused as I just kept talking about how bad idolatry was. And then he just looked at me. He's like, I just, I just don't understand like what's so bad about the dollar tree. <laughs> and uh, it's like, okay, apparently I'm so out of shape, I can't pronounce words when I'm running. So just as a side note, I'm all for the dollar tree. I'm not a real big fan of idolatry. Acts chapter 17. Um, to, to drop this in the timeline of what is going on, okay? Jesus had already finished his ministry, died, rose from the grave, gave the great commission to the church, said, go make disciples of all nations, and then he ascends, and the church gets to work, and the book that describes that is called Acts, okay? It's A-C-T-S. I thought when I was a kid, and I found out when my 13-year-old was taking notes last week, that he also thinks it's A-X-E, right? Uh, Just like Acts. It is not Acts. It is the Acts, or what the early apostles did in response to Jesus' command. So the, the first part of Acts is the Apostle Peter uh, basically kind of leading the church and, and pushing the gospel forward among Jewish people, especially in Jerusalem. Uh, but then very quickly it turns to focus on the Apostle Paul uh, taking the gospel and planting churches uh, all over the Roman Empire to Gentile non-Christians. And at one point, uh, he lands in a town called Thessalonica. And he goes to the synagogue, as he did very often, and he is sharing the gospel mainly with Jews. There would have and other people that were there, he was talking about the resurrection. He says, Jesus claimed to be God, and he proved it by raising the dead. And then a lot of people in Thessalonica were super frustrated and upset by that. In fact, and I, lo- I love this description of the apostles. The Thessalonians were so frustrated, they said, these guys are turning the world upside down with this message of the resurrection. And so they get so frustrated, they start this gigantic citywide riot uh, trying to snuff out the Christian movement. So what happened was they took Paul and, um, and Silas, actually, and they snuck them out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night because they were about to get murdered, uh, and they took them to a little place called Berea, same thing happens. They get to Berea. They go to the synagogue. They share the gospel. A lot of Jewish people, and it says even some very wealthy and prominent Romans were there, and they believed the gospel. So they were in Berea for a time until the Thessalonians came to Berea. Same thing, just followed them, persecuting them. And so they snuck Paul out by himself, and he went to Athens, Greece. Okay, um, So that is where we land in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Uh, Paul is by himself. Uh, he is in Athens. And uh, if you are there, say, ready. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Uh, he is waiting for Silas and for Timothy. They had stayed in Berea. He had gone to Athens. He's waiting there. Uh, and... Um, you know, it's such an interesting thing because I have this sense that they were like, listen, we've gotten in a lot of trouble, almost died the last two cities. Paul, just go to Athens, keep your head down, stay quiet, don't like draw attention to yourself, uh, just uh, hold on until things calm down. And if you know anything about Paul, he doesn't do that real well, 
okay? Uh, he does not do that real well. And so uh, this is what happens. It says that, and now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, uh, his spirit was provoked, okay? Something inside of him was stirred up. At this point, you don't know if it's like stirred up with anger or if it's stirred up with passion or just, what, it's just provoked towards something. Something is, is, is uneasy and unsettled in him. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, so he, maybe he hasn't said anything. He just got there, and maybe he's got a cloak on so people don't notice him, and he's just kind of going through, um, through town, and he's looking at business, and he's looking at family, and he is just overwhelmed with idolatry, okay? Why? Not because, it's not because there was an absence of worship in Athens. They were just worshiping all sorts of different idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person. So he goes to the Jewish synagogue. There would have been many Jews there that maybe hadn't even heard about Jesus and the resurrection. And he starts trying to explain the gospel to them. And in the marketplace every day. So he is around where people at the market would have been trading, and he's trying to just talk to people here and there one on one, sharing the gospel. But he is deeply, deeply grieved by the level of idolatry. And it says some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Why? Because philosopher types are always up for a good conversation. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Just a side note, if you're going to preach something, preach Jesus and the resurrection, right? That is at the heart of every message, like Jesus and the resurrection. That's what Paul shows up preaching. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Uh, okay, so the Areopagus, that's the place where they would have taken Paul for this next uh, sermon or conversation. Uh, and I've got two pictures. I wanted to throw these up so you can see. Like the Bible is not a, a myth. It happened in real time with real people in real places that can go back and be confirmed. Uh, so the Areopagus uh, is a hill that is just outside of the city of Athens. Uh, and the first picture, you can look and kind of at the top edge there uh, is the Mediterranean Sea. And then you've got what would have been the bulk of the city of Athens. And then that giant rock right there is uh, would have been called Mars Hill. And that's where the Areopagus uh, met. So Mars Hill is a geographic location uh, uh, the Areopagus is oftentimes a group of people, philosophers, uh, and they would meet together right there uh, on Mars Hill to talk about and to settle political issues, uh, educational challenges. Uh, they would debate philosophy. They would figure out legal uh, problems and religious matters. Uh, in fact, a few centuries before Jesus, Socrates would have been put on trial uh, right there on the rock for some of his philosophical things that he had stirred up. There's, there's, just, there's so many side notes in this story, to, we don't have time to chase them all down, but I just love the fact that Paul was not only willing, but he was able to meet them on their turf and share the gospel in an incredibly convincing and profound way with all sorts of facts about not only the Word of God, but history about the resurrection of the dead, okay? So the second picture uh, kind of zeroes in that, that that rock can seat a lot of people, and uh, that rock is still there. You can go climb up on Mars Hill and sit there. So put that in your mind uh, as we... 
and think about just the cultural setting overlooking the marketplace uh, with some of the, the most profound, the greatest philosophers that the world has ever seen were all there, and they invited Paul to come, and he had a moment uh, to try to share the gospel in this very uh, unique place. Uh, Verse 20. So they invite Paul in, they bring him up here, and it says, for you bring some strange things to our ears, okay? (laughs) I laughed out loud in my study this week when I read that, and I've preached this text a few times over the last 20 years, but for some reason I never caught that, (laughs) that these people that were all bought in with Greek mythology and just all the things that come with Greek mythology, I don't know how well you've studied Greek mythology or how many uh, cartoons that you have watched about it, but there were some crazy wigged out things they believed about Zeus and Achilles and all these just like mythological creatures that had zero basis in reality. And they're like, I don't know, Paul's saying some really crazy stuff. Well, some of the stuff you believe is, is absolutely crazy as well. The reason I chuckled is because this exact same thing happens in our culture all the time. People are like, what a, what a religious, what a crazy, crazy thing to believe that God became flesh, became a man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose from the grave, appeared to thousands of people, and there was so much historical com- you know, confirmation. While Meanwhile, the people that would say, you know, you bring some strange things to our ears, uh, just believe some very, very strange things. Right? Believe that all sorts of, uh, the, the creation that's so ordered came out of absolute chaos that uh, like love and life and everything that we experienced just uh, came out of a primordial ooze. It's like, well, there's some really strange things that you believe also, right? Apparently that's not striking anybody else, so we'll move on. I thought it was funny. You bring some strange things to our ears. And Paul had been looking at us like, well, y'all got some strange things of your own. It says, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they loved this. They love discussion, they love dialogue, they love to hear the newest and the best thing. And then you see what Paul decided to do when he is preaching his sermon in quote-unquote enemy territory with some of the most brilliant minds on the planet. He had looked through their culture and dissected it. And most of the time, when I have preached this this text, uh, it has been through the lens of looking at like how we should operate missionally in the world, how we should try to understand the culture that we're trying to reach. Um, but I want to look at it from a different perspective, mainly from the perspective of, of worship and idolatry. So verse 22, Paul says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he would have been on that hill with those people all around, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. First thing you see from Paul is he recognizes, listen, these are not a, an irreligious or non-religious people. There is no such thing on the planet. As a non-religious, irreligious person, we don't get the option if we're going to worship or not. We just get to choose if we worship creator or created. So he recognizes that because there was idols everywhere. 
and, and they even had this kind of junk drawer idol. It's like, we probably missed one somewhere, so let's put up an altar and just give the inscription to the unknown God to make sure that we have all of our bases covered. And you just need to know that you, everyone is religious, and you can be very religious and very lost, right? You can be very religious and very lost. Paul would say that about them. I would say that about our culture as well. You can be very religious, very excited about all sorts of different things. That doesn't mean you're a Christian, right? That doesn't mean you're saved. That doesn't mean you're safe. And then, again, don't have time today, but Paul was just, he was such a good preacher and missiologist, missionary, because he was trying to understand the culture, to understand the idols, and to show this culture in a very forward yet respectful way that Jesus is actually the one you're looking for. Like Jesus is actually the answer to all of the things you're longing for. Um, you know, I wonder, because Paul the, Paul the missionary goes into the culture and he looks around and he notices the idols. Okay, they've, they worship that, they worship that, they worship that. Uh, and I will say this, I was in India a few years ago, uh, and uh, predominant religion in India is Hinduism that has thousands of different uh, gods and idols that they serve. And it was very easy to acknowledge and see and understand what idols the, the people worship because you literally would see them. They were in temples, these small temples, or they would be in somebody's house up on their mantle. And so you could just very easily wander through and say, okay, well, that's a God, that's a God, that's an idol, that's an idol, that's an idol. Uh, that, that's not necessarily the case in the United States. In fact, that, that, that's not always the case in every culture. Uh, back in Ezekiel, uh, there's a really interesting story. This is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, Ezekiel's uh, prophesying to these wicked people. And, and God spoke something to Ezekiel, and I think it's incredibly important for us to understand in the culture we live in. He says, be careful. The people you're talking to have taken their idols into their hearts you can't see them anymore. They're not something necessarily built out of stone and brass. It is now an internal thing. And so I wonder, two things, if Paul were to wander around the United States, right, you just teleport him from the first century and drop him in Midland, Texas, and he were to wander around, I mean, he would see the idols so much more quickly than we would because we're kind of like used to them and we don't categorize them as idols, but he would walk through and be like, oh, bam, 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 there they are. It's just super clear to me. I wonder what he would say. I, obviously, I think like sex is a god in our culture. It is one of the uh, predominant idols that our culture has. Uh, reject worshiping God, and so that void has to be filled with something. Uh, and many, many times in, 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 in human culture, sex jumps in to fill that void. Where it's not a good thing, it is a God thing, okay? That, that's an easy definition of idolatry. Oftentimes, taking a good thing and treating it as an ultimate God thing, that's an idol. And I wonder, would he look around and say, money is an idol? It's not a good thing used for a purpose. It's a God thing that everything else in life bows down to that. Maybe it's success. You know, I wonder uh, if Paul were to follow you around and follow me around for a week uh, and look at how we spend our time and how we spend our money and what we value. I think he would be able to pick out pretty quickly the things that we actually serve and worship. Are you all with me? It's so important to not think, well, I guess I don't have a problem with idolatry because I don't have a Buddha statue in my house. No, they have come inside. 
he keeps going. He says, and I think this is so brilliant. He says, what therefore, talking about the, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He, he's literally trying to show them, I am about to show you how Jesus fulfills everything that you are looking for. And so he doesn't come in, and he's not like provoked that they're doing everything wrong. He, he's provoked, like, God, you're, you're so close because you people really are excited about worshiping. We just need to steer it a little bit. Like, he, he looks at it in such a unique missional way, like, man, like these people, even though they're pagan and they have all these idols, they really love to worship. Now they just need to actually know who their heart is longing for and what is actually going to be worthy of their worship. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God. And then he shifts gears from kind of piecing apart their culture to just explaining a bit of the gospel. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it starts with God as a creator. He made the world and everything. It puts God in the category all alone as creator. Being the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I think part of what Paul's saying is like, if you need to feed and water your God and keep your God alive, you probably need a new God, right? If your God is dependent on you, you need a new God. You need a better God. If you created and you fashioned and you sculpted and you carved your own God, like you probably need a new God. And then he keeps going. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. He's like, God made everyone, and he put inside of them this longing, this desire to seek, find, and worship him. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In a lot of the, the theological groups in our current culture, I think a lot of people would be super frustrated that Paul said that. Like Paul just appealed to somebody's feelings. Did y'all catch that? And, but but he, he does it. He's like, like, God put inside of you like kind of these feelings that are longing to worship. That's not a bad thing. You just need to know that those are designed to terminate on Jesus, that they may feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in, and then he quotes what, what he says is some of their prophets. This would have been like somewhat of a pop culture reference in the culture he was trying to reach to prove that he understood them fairly well. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. And as respectful and clever and winsome as Paul was trying to reach these people, he still gets to the offensive portion of the gospel. So he's, he's got such a good mix of not being ugly and disrespectful and proud, but understanding their culture, speaking with respect. But then he gets to this and he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Of what? Idolatry, of worshiping things that he created, not him. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Two things I want to look at in response to what Paul teaches about worship and idolatry. One relates to us truly thinking through what do we worship, and one relates to the culture that we live in that is very similar to the culture he was preaching to, that we still have a mandate to reach with the gospel. Okay, let's start with us. Are y'all, are y'all open for this? Are y'all open to like throwing out some difficult things for you to process? I told you a couple weeks ago, like, we're just pressing really hard because we need the space, right? <laughs> and what, what's so funny is that I always say something like that the week before a holiday, and I'm like, you know what? If you're just here to consume and you don't want to contribute and you just want everybody else to serve you, then maybe this isn't the place for you. And then the next week is a holiday weekend. I have these people messaging me like, like I swear we made our vacation plans before that. We didn't leave. We're not consumers. We're just like, we're at the lake. Uh, We'll see, I guess, we'll see. Uh, anyways, uh, we're just, we're going to put the pedal on the floor, and like, this is something so important to consider. I don't even think, like, okay, honest moment, I do not think the question is, is there an idolatry problem in our heart? I honestly think the question is, where is the idolatry problem in our heart? Like it's it's the, like John Calvin, a great reformer. He said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols, and you look around our culture, like, oh yeah, we create some of the stupidest things on the planet to devote our lives and put our hope in and to worship. Because if you take God out of the mix, then like. God has put something so deeply inside our DNA, it has to get out. It has to be in awe of something. It has to worship. It has to attach to something greater than us. So if you pull God out of the equation, we'll just create just like, like have you seen some of the people in our culture that we worship and they're billionaires now because they're like good at music or it's like, okay, I should probably not chase this down too far. I might get myself in trouble, but like the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols that we will put so many strange things in, uh, in, the, in the throne of God's, like where, where God d- deserves to sit, that it just becomes foolish. And so the question isn't, honestly, I think, do we have an issue with idolatry? It's probably, where is it? And how do we kind of rat it out and then repent, turn, and give Give the worship back two things, to God where it rightly belongs, and then it will stop destroying our lives and leaving us empty. That's the two problems with idolatry, okay? Idolatry steals glory that rightly belongs to Jesus Christ and gives it to something that he created, something way less, and idolatry normally leaves us in just this wake of destruction and emptiness and, and those are, that's not how God has designed it to work. So uh, here's some questions for us to ask honestly. What do you worship? And I know that's a, such a simple question, but uh, to get down to the root of it, we, we normally ask a couple questions. Okay, what do, where does my money go, in the words of Tim Keller, effortlessly? 
Like, does your money go to taxes? Yeah. Is it effortless? No. Like, I will, with every fiber of my being, fight whatever taxes I can. No, I'm not talking about that. Like, where is it just so, just easy that the money flows to? Well, that, that has a very prominent place in your heart. Where does your time go? What do you spend your time on? And it's just hard to get around the fact that your money and your time don't lie. Like, your money and your time, they, they will not lie. They will rat us out. Where does your money go? Where does your time go? That will normally point to actually what we truly, truly worship, what has the dominant place in our hearts. What are you truly in awe of? Like you, th- th- that, That's why there's something unique in the human where you see someone do some unbelievable physical feat and, and you stand up and you cheer and you link arms with other people that agree that that was great. And then you buy their jersey, you put their name on your back, you spend your money and your time. It's just like that can be a hobby, it can be good, but it can also be worship. Where like something is longing to be in awe and you to be caught up and captured by that. So what is it? Like what is it that truly all the other things in your life, they bow down to that one thing? Is it money? Okay? Money's a good thing. Unless it's made the ultimate thing, then it becomes an idol and it becomes to destroy you. Because this is the nature of idolatry, okay? Idols normally demand some type of sacrifice. So if money becomes a god, then it will demand that you sacrifice your marriage on the altar of getting rich, your family on the altar of getting rich, your integrity on the altar of getting rich, because if it's elevated into the place of God, it will demand sacrifices that you do not need to make for those. You put, like, work. Okay, work is such a good thing. We preach all the time that work is a dignified thing. We have been created to work. But you elevate work to the place of God, and it will demand sacrifices that it should not. Family, you become a workaholic if it's elevated to that level. What about uh, our, our bodies and the way that we see ourselves and our beauty? Like uh, We're stewards of our body, and we should take care of them. But if that uh, elevates to the point of a God, then we worship that. It creates so much insecurity. I read the other day that the most insecure, and I don't even know how they got to this study, uh, but supermodels are some of the most insecure people. I wouldn't know. I've never been a supermodel. I've thought about that as a fallback uh, career option, um, but I'm not getting a lot of traction there. Uh, I just like, why, why is that? It's because we've elevated something in, to, to a place of God that like, it just begins to steal the very things that it promised to give. It's like, I don't know what it is. Ask the questions. Be honest. What, what, do you, what are you in awe of? What do you respond to? Where does your money and your time go? Because that's probably what you are actually worshiping. And as we recognize, then we repent, we shift, we worship God. And then those things then get to actually be good things and a blessing. What do you worship? Uh, here is the, the, the problem and why we keep going back oftentimes uh, to worshiping different idols. Uh, because they offer the same thing that God offers. Okay, uh, you know, they'll kind of we get this get this feeling, get this mentality um, that if we just worship X, you pick pick one from the list, then we'll have freedom, then our life will have meaning, then we'll have value, then we'll truly belong, then we'll have some type of uh, redemption from this brokenness. And what they offer normally, they they steal the very thing. Okay, 
if we put sex in that category, like or pornography or um, promiscuity, whatever it might be, uh, and you elevate it as a god, which it you know this, it is the god of our culture, right? And if it's elevated to that, it promises freedom. It doesn't bring freedom. It doesn't bring meaning. It steals the very things that it promises. What do you worship? What is it stealing from you? What has it offered you that Jesus offers but he normally delivers? Um, I want to read something that I ran across this week from a, an author uh, and a, actually, actually a Christian editor named Samuel James. Uh, and he was writing about connecting this text, this Acts 17 text, to the, the Christian desire to reach our culture with the gospel. And how Paul was so right that you go looking around and if you can, if you can put your finger on the pulse of what a culture worships, then you find a legitimate need that is in their heart, and you have to, like, that's, like, Jesus fulfills that need. Jesus is actually what you're looking for, the God that you're looking for, the unknown God. Him I proclaim to you because we are a post-Christian society that is not the same. We are post-religious. That's not the same as a non-religious society. The United States, down to the most staunch atheist, is an incredibly religious society, worshiping all sorts of different things, normally leaving people broken and angry and confused and hurt and lonely, and so the church steps in with the answer to the human heart to worship Jesus. This is what Samuel James says. He says, when we look out and we see our post-Christian society we should not see an impenetrable wall of secularism. We should see what's actually happening. Worship, worship, worship. The soul cries of those who have lived haunted by the specter of transcendent truth could scarcely be louder. They are waiting for someone to explain how they already live. They need the church of Jesus to stand up and say, what you worship as unknown, this we proclaim to you. Then he says, there are so many in our culture that are just longing for healing. We step in and say, that's what Jesus does. Jesus heals from the inside out. So many people are longing for justice. Like we want justice. We demand justice. We say Jesus is all about justice. That's what he does. He brings justice. Uh, A culture of people that are just longing to actually belong somewhere to someone and, and are filling that void with idols that are destroying them. We step in and say, You're actually looking for Jesus. Jesus will accept you. You can belong to him forever. He says, for the souls that are exhausted and wounded, I perceive that in every way you want purpose and meaning. Jesus Christ offers perfect rest, freedom from shame, and a real kingdom to give yourself to body and soul. What about those, he says, that are just captive in our culture to this self-help mentality? He says they want assurance they can live a life of meaning and joy, and Christians hold out the only gentle Savior who himself is our wisdom, our righteousness, and our sanctification. If you just wander around the culture of the United States, you will see worship, 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 idol, 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 and they're all something in the human heart that's meant to be directed at Jesus, and we have the answer. We have what they're looking for. You worship Jesus, everything else tends to fall into place. 
So an idol will demand that we make sacrifice and then give nothing in return. That's what makes the gospel so unique and so different that the God of heaven demands a sacrifice and he's the only one that stepped down and made that sacrifice for us on our behalf. There's no other God that sacrifices for his people but Jesus. Here's the main idea. God the creator created us with a unique desire, propensity, needing, need to respond to greatness. He is the only one worthy of that response and that worship. And as we worship him, everything else falls into place because that's how he's designed us to work. I really do want to invite you to think through and process through if there's any kind of idolatry in your heart, in your life, that you need to confess, that you need to repent and worship Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the only one worthy. I'm reminded of Revelation, I believe, 22, when um, some people were bowing down to worship an angel, and the angel got real uncomfortable and said, no, 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 don't do that. All your worship belongs to Jesus alone. I pray that you would help us to understand our hearts, God, understand the, the, the feelings, the emotions, the urges, the drives that we have, and help us to recognize that those were designed to be met and fulfilled in Christ. God, rescue us from the, the empty and the deceitful idols in our hearts. God, I pray that we would hold out the true gospel that is the answer to the people in our culture. God, I pray in these next few moments as we sing, that you are honored, that you accept our praise and our worship. I pray that you would stir our hearts up to do what truly you have created them to do, to come alive as we worship you. Jesus, we love you, and I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.